Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 140, Hope and Despair. First, a huge thank you to Manush Christoph for your very generous donation. Uh, I'll be reaching out to you shortly, but just to say thank you. And here we are. It is finally season seven. I almost forgot that I had to sort of update the website and add some new pages and all this stuff. It's very exciting. I'm just delighted to start a new chapter in Bulgarian history, a new season. And well, let's get into it. So last time, before the summary episodes for season six, we wrapped up discussing the Treaty of Berlin and how the great powers remade the Balkans with virtually no regard for the local people. Now the Treaty of San Stefano is dead and buried, leaving two rump Bulgarian states in its wake. With the signing of the Treaty of Berlin, there were two main goals that the Russians and Bulgarians had to address in Bulgaria, drafting a constitution and finding a prince. Now, for the first nine months of its existence, the new Bulgarian state was to be administered by the Russians. Under San Stefano, this had been up to two years, so the amount of time Bulgarians had to prepare to run a country had been dramatically reduced, and the reasoning was to reduce Russian influence. But you can imagine, you know, starting a country from scratch in nine months is a pretty difficult proposition. Now, during these nine months, a European commission was to establish the so-called organic regulations, a kind of proto-constitution which would govern Eastern Rumelia, uh, while the same would be drafted for Bulgaria, although they'll just eventually call it a constitution, so I will call it a constitution just to make things simpler. Now, despite this very tight timeline, Russia was determined to ensure everything was in place before those nine months were up, as otherwise there might be chaos and this could be used as a pretext for intervention by the Ottomans or another great power. So everyone wants this to go smoothly. Now, this whole process kicked off about two and a half weeks after the signing of the Treaty of Berlin, when on July the 20th, 1878, a seven-member assembly was created to govern Bulgaria. It was made up of the heads of six departments, uh, kind of, you know, imagine sort of cabinet positions, running ministries and such. And then on top of it all, an imperial commissioner who could issue laws as long as they were approved by the Russian government in St. Petersburg. The heads of these departments could also submit laws for approval by the commission. And if a matter pertained to more than one department, then all the heads would approve it via a majority vote. And at this point, again, the commissioner and Russia would still have to approve basically every law. Now, six of the seven members of this council were Russians, but there was one Bulgarian, that being Marin Drinov, who, okay, to be fair, he was a Russian citizen, but he was from Panagurishte. He was responsible for education and religion. Drinov was 40 years old and had left his hometown for Russia about 20 years previously, after donations had been collected to pay for his studies, and he had spent these two decades traveling and studying around Europe and had recently become a professor. 
His studies had been in history, philology, and theology, and up to this point, he was a pretty well-known and prominent Bulgarian intellectual abroad, who had already played an important role in helping to standardize Bulgarian spelling and dialect. He's widely seen as the main person behind the decision to base modern standard Bulgarian on the central Balkan dialect, instead of the alternate proposal, which was to kind of mix some Eastern and Western Bulgarian dialects, which would have made modern Bulgarian, well, I guess you could say maybe a bit more egalitarian, but also closer to Macedonian. So quick tangent here, right? You know, if you know anything about Bulgaria, if you've been to Bulgaria, you should know something about it, you're listening, you know. People all the way on the Black Sea coast speak fairly differently from, say, the Shop people from here around Sofia, let alone the Macedonians. You can imagine it's kind of a, a gradual shift. And so one idea was to take the, you know, extreme Eastern dialect and the extreme Western dialect and kind of mash them together. But again, Thrinov said, no, we will just base it on the Central dialect. So, in other words... Thrinov had already been playing a pretty important role in establishing the Bulgarian language and, importantly, its political relationship to Macedonia and Macedonian, and he was now becoming the only Bulgarian involved in governing his newly born country, and he will have a more important role to play in the future, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Now, the only way in which Bulgarians really had any say in how the government was governed was through some local elections where some councils were elected by a limited popular vote. However, the government still had quite a bit of control over just who could vote, and they still exercised some power on the local level. Now, fortunately, the judiciary was quite independent and made up entirely of Bulgarians except for the head on that council, who was again a Russian. But unsurprisingly, the authorities found it difficult to find enough qualified Bulgarians to fill those judicial positions, so the judiciary has a tough time early on. In general, though, during this period, Bulgarians begin to enter new civil and administrative roles as these governing institutions are gradually established. Now, particular care is made to ensure that the systems of governance are identical between Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia because, of course, everyone wants to join them as soon as possible, and if they're basically run the same way, this will be much easier. Speaking of Eastern Rumelia, as the news of the Treaty of Berlin spread, it was met with anger, shock, and, well, to put it mildly, dissatisfaction, which grew rapidly, particularly in Eastern Rumelia. Within days, a new newspaper titled Moritza, which is a river which flows past Plovdiv, was founded in that city with funding from the provisional Russian administration. It quickly became a mouthpiece of anger against the Treaty of Berlin. Its editor-in-chief was another man who we'll get to know over time, named Ivan Geshov, whose family were wealthy traders and who had effectively lost everything and nearly been arrested during the Russo-Turkish War. In other words, they were an interesting rare example of wealthier Bulgarians who had clearly thrived under the Ottoman system and who may, remained kind of loyal to the idea of abandoning that system to create an independent Bulgarian state, even though that process basically meant they lost most of their wealth. So kudos to them. It's, uh, most of these wealthier Bulgarians, the Chorbajis, did not kind of take the side, but they did. Now soon, Drinov and Geshov were actually working together and signed a protest memorandum addressed to the great powers, showing their anger in, at the injustices of the Treaty of Berlin. This document made it clear that Bulgarians in Macedonia and Eastern Rumelia would not tolerate this new state of affairs, writing, quote, 
Having now stated clearly to Europe the dangers that threaten peace in the East, we will not be responsible for the rivers of blood that might flow. End quote. So they were not really pulling any punches here. But really, only the Russians paid any attention to this memorandum. Now, as anger over the treaty continued to simmer in Bulgaria, the governing assembly of the country was beginning to well, enact policy and govern. In mid-August, a series of decrees recognized the right of Muslim refugees to return and reclaim their property, with the exception of those who had committed crimes against Christians. Their ownership of property, property would need to be established through the courts, through the possession of deeds, or through other certification. However, while this may have been the law in Bulgaria and shortly in Eastern Romalia, alongside things like freedom of religion, the reality on the ground was quite different. Besides the many Muslims and ethnic Turks who had fled as a direct result of the Russo-Turkish War, in its aftermath, Bulgarians around the country began to use all kinds of intimidation tactics to forcibly take land and property from Turks. Over time, legislation would aid in this effort by targeting Turkish landowners with tax and property laws, which encouraged them to abandon their lands or for Bulgarians to simply take them. I'll talk about these laws more specifically as they're passed, but this is the general policy. Now, fueling this was a combination of many things. Unsurprisingly for many, this was all pure revenge against the people who had oppressed them or even committed direct atrocities against them. Sadly, of course, though, this revenge was often simply against people of the same religion or same ethnic group, much as Bulgarians had been recently attacked for being Christians by Tatars and Circassians who had fled Russian violence in sort of the Caucasus and Crimea. But for others, attacks on all things Turkish and Ottoman were an attempt to rid themselves of anything connected to Ottoman rule. To these people, the past was a sad, uncomfortable place which, in these instances, needed to be destroyed. And often, that's what they did. In December of 1878, Russian military engineers would collaborate with Bulgarians in Sofia to destroy seven of the city's mosques in a single stormy night, using the thunder and lightning as a cover and a pretext to justify the destruction to the representatives of the great powers in the city, claiming that it was an act of God and they had nothing to do with it. Living the city today, it's a, a sad moment, a sad instance of the destruction of Sofia's cultural and historical heritage. And it's one that uh, you don't hear much about here. I've uh, told people this story. I've talked about it on tours and things. And you know, most even Bulgarians are shocked to hear this, but it is a true story. Now, all of this was the beginning of a kind of unofficial land reform that was being enacted in Bulgaria. Again, I'll discuss this in more detail as we go. But throughout the country, we're seeing Muslim landowners, small and large, having their lands confiscated and redistributed to Bulgarians which will have the result of creating lots of small farming plots and one of the more egalitarian land distributions in Europe. So lots of smallholders, people who can farm enough to basically feed their families, but they're not producing a big surplus. So they're not getting wealthy or anything. They're just kind of scraping by. And this is going to have enormous implications as we go forward. But for now, this is kind of that context and how Bulgarian land is being distributed and how it's kind of setting up Bulgaria's agrarian status for the future. Now, by the fall of 1878, things are getting even more complicated. Encouraged by British diplomats wanting to disrupt what they see as a new Russian client state in the Balkans, 
Many Turks who initially fled Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia began to return and attempt to use the laws to reclaim their lands and homes. However, in most cases, these had already been claimed by local Bulgarians, and most of those Turks chose to take the easy route and simply sell at a nominal price and move to the Ottoman Empire. Now, while some Bulgarians and Russians were focused on purging the country of anything which reminded them of the Ottomans while Britain worked to sow chaos in its own ways, others were more focused on expanding the borders to include those Bulgarians left in Thrace and Macedonia. To that end, in late August, an organization called Unity, or Edinstvo, was founded in Veliko Tornovo, though for now it's just called Tornovo. Its members list was impressive to say the least, containing Lubin Karavelov, Stefan Stambolov, and many other prominent Bulgarians of the time. Now, importantly, this organization wasn't limiting its activities to simply lobbying. It intended to establish local committees around the region and ultimately foment revolution. Indeed, as we know, it contained veterans of the planning of the April Uprising, and so this was no idle threat. The committee quickly established cells in Kustendil, Dupnica, and Gornadjumaya, which is modern Bulgovgrad, and recruited experienced Haiduks for their cause. Now, in September, leading members of Edinstvo, voivodas of Macedonian Cheti, and Russian officers met in the Rila Monastery to formulate a more concrete plan of action. Under the chairmanship of Metropolitan Nathaniel of Ohrid, they decided to organize an uprising in Macedonia, focusing on the territories closest to Bulgaria, with the aim of using this uprising to allow Bulgaria to annex these territories. However, as soon as word reached him about this, Tondukov, who's this Russian prince who's basically governing Bulgaria at this time, attempted to prevent Bulgarian actions in Macedonia conducted by Edinsvo because in his eyes, all this would be viewed as Russian interference in the Ottoman territories and would dramatically hurt Russia's position vis-a-vis -vis the other great powers. Remember, right, the, the ink is barely dry on the Treaty of Berlin, and Russia is not interested in rocking the boat because it probably rightfully believes that if chaos comes and maybe war returns, if, if things go to pot, then they're probably going to get a worse deal in the end. So right now, Russia wants stability. It wants the new status quo, and it just doesn't want to rock the boat. So Dondukov is going to communicate that directly to Edinstvo. From what we can tell, it seems that Stefan Stambolov agreed with this request and left Macedonia and basically left uh, his participation in Edinstvo to go participate in the process of writing a Bulgarian constitution, which was about to begin in Thornovo, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Although I, I couldn't find exactly when he did this, whether it was before or after the uprising itself, but Basically, Stambolov listened to Dondukov, and it seems no one else did. Now, while Edinstvo spent September of 1878 preparing for its uprising, work was also progressing on the governing of these two new states. Marin Drinov published a temporary decree establishing Bulgaria's first unified school system and educational structure, and actually, this established free and mandatory elementary education for boys and girls, and it's basically the foundation of Bulgaria's educational law. But while individual laws were establishing some new rules and regulations, intense debates about the nature of Bulgaria's constitution were ongoing. Again, as you can imagine, nine months is not a long time to finalize such an important document, and so everyone was under intense time pressure. 
many Russian officials thought that Bulgaria was simply not ready to govern itself and needed to leave this task largely up to a prince once one could be found. And remember, this prince would be a foreigner. Now, others, like Dondukov, wanted a constitution modeled on the Serbian and Romanian constitutions. Largely liberal, with some guaranteed rights, but still giving a decent degree of power to a prince. A kind of questionnaire was distributed to some prominent Bulgarians, church officials, and laypeople to get their input on the whole constitutional process. Drinov, for his part, wanted to give a prince broad powers for seven years before handing them over to an elected assembly. Now, I could go on, there were a lot of different factions within Bulgaria who each had their own opinions about how the government should be structured, but suffice to say, there wasn't a lot of unity here. And really, the lack of a unifying figure, for example, as Levski could have been, no doubt made it much more difficult to come to an agreement here. Now, one concerning issue early on was that the Russophobic elements of Bulgarian society, followers of people like Rukovsky, Karavelov, and Botev, were really not consulted at all in this process. Granted, this faction wasn't in a very strong position at the moment, considering the broader Bulgarian population had very positive feelings towards Russia following the war, but this is still an important group, and it's going to be important in Bulgarian politics going forward, and so it's worth noting that no one's asking them anything. Now, meanwhile, late September saw the first meetings of an assembly created an assembly to kind of create a governing document for Eastern Rumelia, and these meetings began in Constantinople before moving to Plovdiv in October. So a little behind Bulgaria, but Eastern Rumelia is also working on drafting its own kind of sort of constitution. Now, while all this work on creating governing documents for Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia was progressing, the efforts of Edinstvo to spark an uprising to expand Bulgaria's territory were finally coming to an head which was pretty fast. All this happened in a couple months. Literally, the, the time between Edinsvo being founded and it starting its uprising is give or take about four months, so very fast. Now, early in the morning on October the 17th, a full 400 Bulgarian fighters mounted an attack on Ottoman forces stationed at various inns in the town of Kresna along the Struma River. So today, if you're driving south uh, on, on the highway towards Greece from Sofia, this is, you know, Kresna is where that beautiful gorge is. It's called the Kresna Gorge. So right about there, south of Blagovgrad. Yeah, so this is, again, about halfway between Blagovgrad and Sendansky in Piran, Macedonia. Now, this initial battle lasted a full 18 hours, but saw the Bulgarians victorious. And just like that, the Kresna Roslog uprising had begun. The insurgents soon expanded to liberate more towns and villages as smaller groups began operating throughout Varda Macedonia as well. About a month into the uprising, Bulgarian fighters successfully liberated Bonsko. So you can you know, look at a map, you can kind of see how this was expanding. But these weren't the only Bulgarians experiencing a change in who governed them at this time. Because while the Krasnodarslog uprising was raging, Russia formally retook the territory of southern Bessarabia from a very annoyed Romania. I say Bulgarians had this change because at this time, that territory included about 103,000 Bulgarians living in two towns and 70 villages, leftovers from centuries when this was part of the First and Second Bulgarian Empires, as well as a lot of refugees who had fled there after previous Russo-Ottoman wars. Now, today, this is Moldova, and there's still a Bulgarian minority there. 
Now, about a month later, Romania would get its compensation and would begin administering the territory of northern Dobroja, which, of course, many Bulgarians wanted to be part of Bulgaria. Now, although far short of an outright revolt like the one that began in Kresna, Russia, Britain, and Austria-Hungary were becoming more aware and concerned over anger over the Treaty of Berlin in eastern Romania. A committee was formed, including Bulgarians from all regions of the re of kind of the Balkans, where there were Bulgarians, and began preparations to travel to Turnovol to speak to the great powers about their concerns, although many on the committee felt that this was a fairly hopeless task. Now, late in October, the Russian administration moved its headquarters from Plovdiv to Sofia on the advice of Marin Trinov, and, well, this is, as we'll see in a moment, the beginning of a kind of pattern, where Sofia is where everything is coalescing. At that same time, the first ever demonstration of a phonograph, i.e. a record player, in Bulgaria occurred in Plovdiv, and another example of how Western culture and technology were finally coming to Bulgarian lands. Now, the following months saw even more important Bulgarian institutions move to Sofia, including a new military school, which had recently been established in Plovdiv, the Bulgarian Literary Assembly, which had been in Braila before, and soon Sofia would see its first public library, which is now the St. St. Kirill and Methodius National Library, an all-boys high school, a new national museum, as well as a reading room. Now, Sofia wasn't the only city making big strides, as in December, the first mayor of Starozagora invited a Czech architect to create a plan for the city. Which is why, if you've been to Starozagora, you'll notice that it has a very uniform grid layout compared to other Bulgarian cities, and that begins at this time. In November, the task of writing up Bulgaria's new constitution was completed, and it was sent to St. Petersburg for approval. About a month later, it returned with some minor alterations. And at this point, Marin Trinov took on the task of translating it, where he somewhat ironically made a few errors, which actually altered the meaning of some provisions. So funny to think that your little kind of translation error could actually affect a constitution. And at this point, this new proposed constitution was sent to the assembly for approval. Now, this assembly or committee had recently been formed basically to approve a Bulgarian constitution, and it consisted of 229 members. 117 were included because of their positions as senior clergy, court officials, or senior administrative officials. Another 88 were directly elected. Another five represented other various societies and institutions, and the final 19 were appointed by Prince Dondukov directly. This whole assembly contained representatives of the Turkish, Greek, and Jewish minorities in Bulgaria. However, their meeting won't begin until mid-February of 1879, so I'll cover that in the next episode, as well as obviously talk about the new constitution in a lot more detail. Well, that's because, meanwhile, November also saw dramatic reversals for the Cheti leading the Kresna Razlog uprising. Just three days after Bansko was liberated, Ottoman forces put Kresna to the torch. Within a few weeks, most territories had been retaken by the Ottomans, with some territories on the western bank of the Struma holding out for a few more months. But at this point, for all intents and purposes, the military element of the uprising was over. Around 25 to 30,000 Bulgarian refugees fled to Bulgaria as the Ottomans carried out their usual bloody reprisals. Once again, it had been shown that without great power support, such an uprising had no chance of success. 
Russia was by this point exhausted and bound to comply with the Treaty of Berlin or again risk the anger of its fellow great powers. In fact, Russian officials who sympathized with or aided the uprising were personally reprimanded by the emperor. As Misha Glenny wrote, quote, The new elites on the Balkan periphery learned the lesson beaten into them at the Congress. The consolidation and expansion of the state could best be achieved by finding a mighty sponsor, not by cooperating with one's neighbors. End quote. Now, a historian quoted in Glenny wrote of the Kresna uprising that, quote, The only result of the episode was to encourage the Turks to provoke unrest in the Muslim areas of the Rodopi Mountains, and to put the Western powers even more on their guard as to Bulgarian intentions, end quote. Misha Glenny himself went on to write that, quote, At the height of the Kresna uprising in 1878, the rebels produced a document called The Rules of the Macedonian Rebel Committee, which codified the aims and conduct of the rebellion. For such an apparently primitive revolt, it is a very detailed text, running to 211 rules. These express the paradoxes and contradictions that would afflict the Macedonian cause for decades after the uprising's collapse. The committee appeals to those people from Macedonia who feel themselves to be Macedonian, regardless of faith and nationality, to flock to the rebellion. Yet, a few paragraphs later, the committee admits that the aim of the uprising is, quote, No secret, it is the liberation of Macedonia, the land of the glorious Slav educators and teachers, Saints Cyril and Methodius, end quote. Thus, the Kresna uprising and henceforth the movement for the liberation of Macedonia were simultaneously inclusive of all nations and exclusively Slav. At the start of the Macedonian struggle, it seems its participants were only sure of one thing, that the Ottomans should leave, end quote. Now, I thought that did a pretty good job of, of kind of giving you some idea of the complexities of the, the Macedonian cause, something that we're going to talk about in a lot of detail as we go forward. But even at this point, even in a single document, you have these kind of profound contradictions. Now, it will take the Ottomans about three full years to really reestablish order after the Kresna uprising. Uh, and for that time, the local population will continue to face brutalities of Bashi Buzuk irregular soldiers. So, as Bulgaria, Eastern Romalia, Thrace, and Macedonia all enter 1879, the air must have been heady with a mixture of hope and despair. Bulgaria was in the late stages of creating its own constitution and finally governing itself, though a foreign prince would take a lot of that responsibility. Institutions were being founded and consolidated in Sofia, although a capital for the new Bulgarian state had yet to be chosen. I uh, can't really say spoiler alert there because it's pretty obvious. Eastern Romalia was in despair, glad to be at least partially free from direct Ottoman rule, but deeply unsatisfied by its separation from Bulgaria. Many in Macedonia were facing yet more violence and uncertainty as Ottoman rule returned. Greeks, Turks, and other minorities wondered what their place in these new states and territories might be as they are forced or pressured to leave lands that their ancestors had lived on for centuries. Whether any particular person was feeling hope or despair at this moment, it was clear to everyone that the world around them was changing fast. But just what those changes might bring, they could only wonder. Next time, we'll see Bulgaria finally finalize a new constitution, say goodbye to one of its greatest revolutionaries, and continue the process of building its first state 
in five long centuries. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the accompanying blog post for this episode and lots of other great stuff at bghistorypodcast.com. And I'll see you in the next one.